0: Hey, Eloise. Can't wait to hear all about Andy's Can Adventures.
1: I know. He's been sending us a couple of... He hasn't been um, tweeting a lot about it, but he's been sending us some messages. So, you know, overabundantly excited messages.
0: I can't... I don't want to steal his funder, but I do recall him mentioning a Tilda sighting.
1: You did. Wasn't it like a 2am tilde sighting Yeah, a 2am tilde sighting mm. on
0: La Croisette. So yeah. um, that's all exciting. Oh, and of course there's movies and I'm sure he's saying. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. It's not just
0: all celebrity. Well, uh, you know the
1: festival scene.
0: I know. It's about partying. Exactly. And I'm sure he has had a lot of fun. So we can't wait to hear all about that. Meanwhile, you and I have just been to see Accused Miss Fortune, haven't we?
1: We have, and, yeah, I guess we've got to hold the fort and review it all on our own because Andy has seen it, and I think that he and I have both mentioned it on the podcast previously in our some of our Myth dispatches from last year. I know it was in my top five Myth films that I saw, so.
0: And now it's finally uh, in limited release across Australia.
1: Yeah, yeah. So shall we um, get started?
2: Let's do it. What do you think of his work? Recent paintings, the last few years, even shit. But the early sculptures, when he started to paint, it was great. But I'm not going there to write about his art. Well, what are you writing about then?
0: Down below the spur, I know, and now the milk is dying.
2: You fucking look at me like you're some
0: animal. Come on.
2: I'm not an animal, Adam, I'm a, I'm a journalist.
0: Actor and director Thomas M. Wright makes his feature directorial debut with this film, an adaptation of Eric Jensen's book of the same name. Toby Wallace plays Eric, a very young, precocious and somewhat ill-at-ease journalist assigned by his editor to write a profile of the artist Adam Cullen. At this stage of his career, Cullen, played by Daniel Henschel, had achieved a large degree of fame, notably winning the Archibald Prize for his uh, well-known portrait of the actor David Wenham. He had also gained plenty of press interest for a tumultuous personal life. Adam couldn't be a more different kind of man to the awkward young journalist Eric. At his property in the Blue Mountains, Adam spends his time drinking, shooting things, doing drugs and riding quad bikes. When he asks Eric to be his biographer, the two start spending more and more time together. Eloise, ultimately, is acute misfortune anything more than just a portrait of a clearly troubled male artistic genius?
1: That's an interesting question because I think clearly that is such an established sort of subgenre of films that, of course, this is going to be thrown into that category mm. by some people who may have you know not seen the film just yet because there is so much more to it than just being a portrait of a troubled genius and in fact Thomas Wright in interviews has said that he doesn't actually think Adam Cullen was a genius that he was a very gifted painter um, but doesn't have you know that extra kind of quality to give him that status and so we have to say you know take Wright's word for it and say, well, no, it's not just a portrait of a troubled genius. But I actually met Tom- with Thomas Wright last year during MIF and he said something to me that I sort of agree or kind of, you know, made sense to me in light of what the film was doing, which is that, you know, sort of the film is occasionally littered with shots of just people, you know, sitting on train platforms mm. or sitting on trains or wandering the streets of Sydney um, or, you know, you know ha- hanging out in a bar I think there's one scene and so it's littered with these shots of these anonymous faces and the the effect of those anonymous faces was to suggest that you know no one really knows what's going on in anyone's life beyond what you see on the street and that there are all of these people who we just glance at every day and we don't really well you know there's no access to them at all and that kind of got me thinking well if that is a you know, kind of meant to lead us in this way to think both Adam and Eric are people who, if we just glanced at them on the street, we wouldn't know what they were going through. And, in fact, this, this film portrait is maybe supposed to give some insight as to their kind of inner workings, I suppose. And I think that, you know, more than being a portrait of a troubled male specifically, that's what this film is. About just like what people are going through, essentially.
0: Yeah, interesting. And what um, two Australian men, I guess, are going through because he does. Uh, it's interesting because, yeah, uh, uh, in the beginning, overlaid on top of those really interesting shots of uh, sort of random commuters and things in Sydney, um, you get sort of Eric's commentary and he's sort of playing this sort of game at the train station with his two friends where he's coming up with. Um, well, I guess this exactly is trying to, you know, read who these people are and he comes up with sort of funny sort of descriptions, if flippant, um, descriptions of of uh, who these people are while they're waiting for a train, um, which is another, which sort of, I guess, adds credence to this argument. Um, but, yeah, what I found really interesting is Adam, as a character, he really rejects Australian, uh, well, apparently rejects Australian middle-class suburbia. This is what he's sort of drove him in his artistic practice. He sort of pontificates on this at several points um, in this quiet sort of almost amusing fashion where he'll say to Eric, you know, uh, this is a quote, um, you know, you're taking this down kind of thing and he'll come up with some sort of bon mot or something about life in middle-class suburbia. So I found that really interesting undercurrent uh, throughout the film and just how strongly he reacted against that in quite dark and sort of self-defeating ways, quite toxic ways, I guess.
1: Yeah. I mean, why do you think that Adam Cullen is so, wants to be so in control of what Eric Jensen writes about him?
2: There are several
1: indications in the film, you know, the very fact that he kind of like demands this biography be written anyway. (laughs) Um, And then later on says, you know, I don't want you to interview anyone while I'm not there. He gets angry or aggressive towards Eric that he can't read his journalist shorthand kind of thing. So he feels like he wants to be in charge of what this biography is. And is that, I mean, is that inherently something that all artists feel the right to because they essentially define themselves through their art that they're giving to the world, that they don't want anyone else to have a go at defining themselves.
0: Yeah, to be in control of their their narrative. Mm. I think that's a very interesting point um, because, yeah, he does have this extreme reluctance, I think, to... And he's always sort of playing little games with Eric too, Um, some sort of quite extreme. um, uh, But, yeah, you never get the sense that he's totally comfortable, well, totally comfortable with himself, let alone this this experience. But yet he still brings him around with him, doesn't he? And he sort of proudly says, calls him his biographer, you know, he's he's going to meet his um, drug dealer, for example, and he's like, oh, this is my... Biographer Eric, he's with me, so he he's almost quite proud of the fact that he's got this guy tailing him, telling his story. Yet at the same time, as you say, he's very uncomfortable with with letting him do that.
1: So the the poster for this film is a man sitting on a chair, but without a head. So his head has been you know removed from the photograph, and. Probably if you scrutinised it closely, you could tell who the man is. But I think what you get from that sense, you know, that kind of like composition is that this is a film that is about a man who either hasn't been defined yet or indeed cannot Mm -hmm. be defined because that's the nature of this like strange biographic process. But also that it's a film called Acute Misfortune and the book that it's based off is The Life and Death of Adam Cullen, but is the film about Adam Cullen or is it about Eric Jensen more? I mean, it, it is about both of them essentially. But this mm-hmm. is not simply a biography of Adam Cullen, is it?
0: No, no. And it's not, nor is it just simply a telling of events that happened. It it does interrogate them in this sort of interesting way. I mean, the biography, it's such an interesting thing, this Idea of journalists, like right at the start, there's a little bit of dialogue where Eric, you know, makes this witty comment about, um, oh, the patron saint of journalists is Judas, <laughs> and it's this idea that you betray, um, and it's a similar idea to um, what uh, Janet Malcolm said that you know journalism is the art of seduction and betrayal. You seduce your source into telling you things, and then you betray them by publicizing it. So, um, it's already this very uh, morally fraught, I guess, relationship, which is exactly mirrors um, what we were saying before about this idea that you can't... I mean, even if the express purpose of the exercise of biographing uh, is to um, get inside someone's head and tell, you know, quote-unquote, tell their story, it's virtually impossible. It seems to suggest it's impossible.
1: Sure, sure, sure. I mean earlier on Eric Jensen profiles Cullen in the, you know, the Sydney Herald. Yep. And Adam says, you know, my my show has been closed at the gallery. It should but it should have been there forever. So this kind of thing that his recognition has only been short lived, but that he wants it to be embedded in the, you know, the cultural kind of structure of his mm. city or even his country because he's made this art and that represents him now and he wants this to be the thing that is him for eternity, whereas, in fact, you know, that kind of thing is really fractious.
0: Yeah, and indeed he does have that amazing line, which um, is quite depressing, but he says um, all art is just palliative care. We're (laughs) just, like, making... We're easing the transition to death or something, and I found that really interesting.
1: Totally. I An interesting concept. This film is... Kind of unfair to call it morbid, but that's the only word I can really think of right now in the sense that, you know, of course it's about the death of Adam Cullen, but it's also about Adam Cullen essentially um, knowingly engaging in self destructive behavior, not only in the way that he treats his body through, you know, drug and alcohol abuse and, you know, f- physically extreme activities, but self-destructive in the sense that he has this new friend and he pushes that you know he pushes eric so 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 far Mm. but eric as well basically yearns for this self destruct like abusive and self-destructive relationship and there's no answer given as to why eric keeps going back to adam and i find that really fascinating yes and i really love the film that it doesn't attempt to answer that question and there's There's nothing like Eric goes back because he wants the reward or he wants the fame or he wants the money. Like there's those things are never promised in the film and it does become, you know, quite obvious that they were never really part of the bargain, that Eric has somehow just... There's something else that he's after, and Mm. I don't know what that is, and I love that about this film.
0: Mm. That was really interesting. It was interesting that his family were almost entirely absent, Uh, and even his friends, they're there in that opening scene, and then really they all sort of disappear, and there's that sort of amazing scene where he... um, you know he has like I don't know if, I wouldn't even call him his boyfriend but well the film does it it just suggests anyway he he sleeps with this guy and you get the
1: sense that it was maybe once on the cards as a relationship yeah, but Eric is but he's just, just withdrawn to mm.
0: this other thing and the guy's like I'm going to go for a walk to, are you going to join me kind of thing and he's like very distracted by all of his copious notes yeah. Um yeah he's such a fascinating and an enigmatic character in this film and there's that sort of that great scene where he meets his editor um at the editor's house and she says, you know, what are you doing? You're still going out to Adam Carlin's place. You know, it's been two years or something. And and he sort of says what he does. And she says, So what you're just going there getting pissed? Like, why? Yeah, she she sort of asks him, Why are you doing it? And he can't quite answer that. That's, I think, what elevates the film for me, the fact that it really is a double portrait. It's not just here's Adam Cullen, a troubled artist guy. It's, well, here are two two men who are very interesting, almost the opposites of each other, but as you said, Eloise, they also share some things in common as well. That's what I think made the film so interesting to me.
1: I mean, I agree with you completely, but I think... I just want to talk a little bit about the style of this film because yeah. that as well is what really makes it a phenomenal Australian film in my opinion because it's about, you know, the impossibility of biography and the um, the impossibility of knowing someone else through friendship or even through, you know, portraiture kind of thing of this regard and so it essentially paints this really fractured I guess, portrait of two people, and the film supports that because its narrative and its, like, temporal construction is also really fractured. We don't even get a sense of how much time passes between each scene. I think overall the f- film kind of takes place over maybe four years. Yeah, but you That's never... never mentioned. Yeah. Scenes aren't... I mean, you mentioned the scene with his maybe... with Eric's maybe boyfriend, and there's no... You know, definition of that. We don't. We, there's no entry point into it, and there's no exit from that scene. You know, it's no not a classical kind of setup, and mm. that is the way that so many scenes are kind of framed. And I find that a really fascinating way of allowing, I guess, the medium of the film to support the content of the film or what's being explored. And it's something that I've actually noticed about my own tastes. You know, last year, some of the films that I loved. The most like you were never really here, and Cold War, and even elements of A Star is Born mm. were all told in this really kind of fractured nature, mm. and that you just tiny snippets of someone's experience and then shifting forward, you know, several years or however long. And that it's such an intriguing way of telling a story because it doesn't give you any easy answers. And I love that.
0: Yeah. And in fact, Um, now that we're thinking about this, Gloria Bell too. Um, Although, interestingly, in a very, I would argue, different aim, I guess. But, um, yeah, I completely agree. Really, I mean, I don't want to call it lyrical, but I will call it lyrical. (laughs) Um, Yeah, just like there's some beautiful shots in there. Yeah. An amazing shot of actually Jensen on the rocks with, like, the huge, the waves of water. It It looked like the water was... In reverse, like it was not yes. crashing towards.
1: I thought the shore it was as away. well, and yeah, you can't really tell. No, it's just, so just amazing. Beautifully, like poetic about that shot, I suppose. If
0: we think about this idea of um, you know middle class Australian suburbian, blah 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 blah, all of that stuff is sort of stripped away, and you've got something very sort of bare bones. I mean, they literally skin animals up on the farm, and you know that juxtaposition of that you know they they sleep in sleeping bags out uh in the in the wilderness and and yeah those shots of the surf there's something very sort of elemental and i don't know real about that which i found quite interesting
1: yeah and then he looks out over you know the blue mountains the classic aussie bush and says to his friends you don't have this in spain do you yeah. you know i mean spain is fucking beautiful but it's <laughs> it's not the australian bush to him and that again i think is you know part of his resistance to mi- the middle class or you know other aspirations you know something that is other to what he knows and what he really loves
0: yeah no it's, it's such a fascinating film
1: it's i suppose i was going to say it's not an easy film to watch but i mean it's it both is and it isn't it's very beautiful um it's i suppose it's not an easy film to kind of comprehend but that means that it's got layers and layers and layers that you just have to kind of keep Going over. I uh, love this film so much.
0: Yeah, same. Agreed. Hard uh, recommend for me.
1: Yeah, and it, what in Melbourne, it's only screening at Nova and the Yarraville Sun Theatre, but I think a couple of other cinemas around Australia. Anyway, and worth seeing. Totally recommend going to a cinema. I mean, it looks stunning. It's very intense. It's 90 minutes, not that long, but a really intense experience. The score by Evelyn Ida Morris is also fantastic. Like, really recommend going to a cinema. For this one, and just shutting shutting out the world.
0: Mm. Agree. Okay. <laughs>
2: And that is the sound of some happy Cannes Festival goers leaving a screening. It's Andy Hazel here. I'm just going to report from Cannes 2019 with snippets about some, pre- some films that you will probably be seeing later this year, either at the Melbourne Film Festival or at general release. It was a crazy Can, of course. I've only ever been once before, as you listeners would have heard my report last year from the Terrasta journalists. This year um, I was reporting from a hotel room, so the sound is a little better. Even if the atmosphere is a little, um, little more restrained. So the first film I was going to talk about is the Palm Door winner Bong Joon Ho's film Parasite. This was a very popular choice. Uh, a lot of people saw, that, managed to catch this one. People have generally seen quite a few of director Bong's films before, uh, like Okja, The Host, or Snowpiercer, or Memories of a Murder. Mother. He's got a whole <laughs> bunch of really, really well-received films, and *Parasite* was really no exception because uh, it also, like his other films, explores class in a s- Korean society. Um, and this film is is focused on a poor family who are unemployed but are not averse to hard work, and it follows their story of how they manage to ingratiate themselves into a very wealthy family. Because, as director Bong explained. In an interview that I did with him afterwards, he said this is very one of the very few situations in which very poor and very wealthy Koreans will ever actually come face to face because usually there are barriers put up in every aspect of society um, except for this one where you w- would hire a driver or a housekeeper or a tutor. Um, And so Parasite kind of is an interesting title because, in a way, both are parasitic off each other. And so this is sort of this inseparability, yet these tensions are what really informs Parasite and makes it a really exceptional film. Because it is funny, it is dramatic, it's horrifying, it manages to be all sorts of different things. But all of these qualities come naturally from this really, really great screenplay. Parasite is getting a June 27 release across Australia, so you'll probably be hearing more about it then. But uh, this is a film I really, really liked and would heartily recommend and was very glad to see it uh, take the Palm d'Or. Although there was a film called Portrait of a Lady on Fire by French director Céline Sciamma, who was hotly tipped to become the second woman to ever take the Palm d'Or. But her film just wound up winning Best Screenplay and the Queer Palm. This is a love story between an 18th century noblewoman and the woman asked to draw her portrait um, as a means to elicit marriage proposals, which she definitely doesn't want. Unfortunately, I didn't catch the film, despite my best efforts at queuing, but it's already been picked up by Neon and Hulu for distribution, so if it doesn't turn up at MIFF, there'll be a good chance we'll see it online in the near future. Uh, Another film that was very popular amongst people I chatted to in queues was Les Miserables, um, a film by Laj Lee, who is a French actor who some people might have seen in the MIFF film last year, The World is Yours, uh, the French comedy sort of crime thriller drama. Um, Les Miserables is Laj's directorial debut, and it's also looks at class cultures. Um, but This one in the Parisian suburb, saint Denis, which is where the book by Victor Hugo, Les Miserables, was written. And so it basically is in a similar way to Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing and the French film La Lahaine. Uh, it looks at these sort of t- tensions on a hot summer, summer's day as a lion cub is stolen from a circus and immediately the gypsies who run the circus point the finger at the local Islamic community who already have very strained relationships with the local police force who are asked to investigate it, and whose investigations escalate tensions very, very quickly. Uh, And then these kids who actually stole the lion car are kind of the heart of the film, but mainly um, the film is focused on the experiences of this one particular officer, uh, Corporal Ruiz, whose first day on the job is taken up by chasing the people responsible for this Lion Cup. So people got very, very excited about this. Amazon spent a huge amount of money, I think $14 million on purchasing the global rights to the film. So I'm sure you'll have a chance to see it sometime in 2019. I'd recommend it. It was really, really interesting. It's very, very capably made. For a directorial taboo, it's really accomplished. Uh, a film that got a little bit, little bit less attention but I was really hoping would be amongst the lower level awards given out um, was a film called Nina Wu by a director called Midi Zed. Um, and this is of, like the David Lynch film Mulholland Drive but without the lynchiness and with the focus on the film industry and on women's relationships Um, and the aspiring actors who are trying to get these coveted roles. So Nina Wu kind of takes in the story about this girl who is leaving a small-town theatre company in the country in Taiwan and moves to Taipei to try and become an actress. And she starts that work as a cam girl, then manages to get this audition for this highly regarded art house director who turns out to be tyrannical. Um, The audition process, you know, is uh, quite difficult. The um, role itself is even more difficult. And then the the film kind of explores her integration with this role of a woman who is schizophrenic, uh, possibly murderous. Um, It's a really, really interesting film. Very, very stylish, but not too stylish. Quentin Tarantino was in the audience, speaking of stylish films. um, And he seemed to be very enthusiastic about it. Speaking of Tarantino...
0: To my right is Bounty Law series lead and Jake Cahill himself, Rick Dalton. And to my left is Rick stunt double, Cliff Booth. So, Rick, uh, explain to the audience exactly what it is a stunt double does. Actors are required to do a, a lot of dangerous stuff. Cliff here is meant to help carry the load. Is that uh, how you describe your job, Cliff? What, carrying his load? Yeah, it's about right.
1: <laughs> and, that was the best acting I've ever seen in my whole
2: life.
0: Thank like you. <laughs> Rip fucking no.
2: Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was probably the biggest film of the festival. There uh, seems to be a point at which you can separate the before and after during the festival because it was pretty much all anyone was talking about leading up to that point. The cues were ridiculous. The tension around the screenings was was palpable. Tarantino, of course, you might have seen the headlines, You know, got very defensive when asked about Margot Robbie's small role in the film or perceived small role as some journalists saw it. I was lucky enough to get seat number 1,999 out of the 2,000 seat screen press screening and that was after a two and a half hour wait. Um, And it was a very, very uh, interesting experience. Of course, you know, uh, we're all embargoed from talking about the ending of the film but I can say that it takes place on February 8th and February 9th, 1969 for the first two thirds of the film and the last third takes place in August 1969 on the night of the Manson murders. Leo DiCaprio plays a fading TV film actor, Rick Dalton, while Brad Pitt plays Cliff Booth, who is his his, his stunt double and also drinking buddy and chauffeur and best friend, pretty much only friend, really. And the film pretty much just explores their friendship, but then against this changing industry. So as uh, Rick Dalton's TV show kind of dries up and he's looking to move into movies, it's a very difficult situation. Al Pacino plays uh, Marvin Schwartz, who is his agent, and then gets him some jobs in spaghetti westerns. So a part of the film is also set in Italy. Um, but then when he comes back to L.A., you know, it's changed the hippies everywhere. There's, uh, he's starting to feel like a man out of time and out of place. And Tarantino really obviously feels a deep affection for this time period. It's richly detailed. Margot Robbie plays Sharon Tate, who is kind of under this elliptical sort of soul of the film in a way. Uh, I'll be able to talk about it more when it gets its release, um, which I think is middle of July, so we'll hear about it more then. But it was definitely one of the highlights for me. And it's a very – there's a lot of caveats with that highlight. It's a really, really interesting film. But also there are problems, you know, that Bruce Lee kind of turns up very briefly and is there as a literal punching bag for Cliff Booth, for you know, so Brad Pitt can kind of seem a bit cool. There are issues, as there often are with Tarantino films, with violence against women. There will probably be an awful lot on social media that people will be able to get into with this, both good and bad. But for me, I thought it was just a really masterfully made film and really rich, and it's kind of lingered with me, particularly the ending, which I am um, able to talk about right now. Um, one film that I can talk about a bit more is The Lighthouse, which is Robert Eggers' follow-up to his film The Witch, which a lot of people really appreciated when they saw it at MIF in 2017, I think it was. Uh, So The Lighthouse just focuses on two characters. Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe play these two uh, men working in a lighthouse. Um, uh, Robert Eggers has once again gone hardcore on the period dialogue and taken a lot of artistic liberties with using an almost square film ratio and really gets into this confluence of literal life running a lighthouse, myth that goes with people who've spent a lot of time on the sea and uh, working with the sea, frontiersman sort of mentality. And I know oh it's difficult to explain, but it is a really, really interesting film. It was very atmospheric. It's not a horror film like The Witch. It's kind of scaryish in parts, I suppose, but it's more this kind of suffusing atmosphere. Like, Robert Eggers is really, really, really talented at just making you feel... Transported, So it did remind me a little bit of um, the Canadian filmmaker Guy Madden and the way that he manages to also cultivate this sort of strange, unsettling, disconcerting atmosphere. It's very, very tactile. At the Q&A afterwards, Robert Eggers was explaining how he used 35mm black and white film and developed these particular... Uh, style in which you would be able to see the literal paws on the nose of Robert Pattinson, so you're feeling really, really enveloped by this world. So when it comes to that, I think he's an absolute master. Whether people love the story or are going in looking for a, like something as scary and as unsettling as The Witch, I don't know if they'll get that same sort of uh, feeling. But I thought it was an absolute success. Um, another film that was a very unsettling and a success as well was this film called Baccaro, which which did actually manage to win an award. Uh, it shared the jury prize with uh les misérables <laughs> 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 a gente tá sendo datado <laughs> você quer viver ou morrer So Baccaro is a Brazilian film directed by Juliana Dorneles and Kleber Mondonca Filho. Mondonca Filho directed the 2017 film Aquarius, which went down particularly well here at Cultural Capital. Um, Baccaro looks at a filmmaker who goes to a village in the interior of Brazil to make a documentary, but things do not work out quite so smoothly because this is a very unusual village in which... Locals are regularly drugging themselves with a psychedelic pill that uh, keeps everybody quite happy and chilled, but also very functional. Like the village is, does seem to be quite a happy, functional place. But it's also protecting a bandit who lives in the jungle. There is also a mayor who's trying to be reelected, who does not really like the villagers, and they do not like him. There's also a U.S. paramilitary group who are sent there to wipe out the village because they're kind of last holdouts against environmental development in the region. So this sets the stage for this very interesting and uh, genre-free kind of exploration of uh, political satire. So it kind of moves freely all the way. Like through. It's like comic moments. There's action heist style film moments. There's elements of sci-fi that come into it as well. Magical realism are plenty. It's a very strange film and all, not all of the risks worked for me, but they are definitely. it's definitely unusual and it's definitely worth seeing. I really hope that makes it to Miff because I think there would be um, a lot of fans for this really quite unusual film. It'll stars Udo Kier. Um, well, I suppose Udo Kier is, plays the leader of this paramilitary group, Sonia Brago, plays uh, the de facto stubborn elderly woman who seems to turn up in all of Philo's films. Um, Philo also made neighbouring sounds as well. Another film that garnered a lot of attention and no awards, A Hidden Life, Terence Malick's new movie. And, you know, he's found a narrative again. It's been a while since he's flirted with the idea of using a narrative, but here we are. A Hidden Life tells the story of an Austrian farmer who is conscientiously objects to signing a, a loyalty oath to Hitler, as all people must, during the 1943 uh, in Austria. And so this simple act of defiance ends up having these huge ramifications for his family and for his role in the community um august Diel plays the farmer valerie Pachner plays his wife um and they're dynamite performances and it looks incredible there are so many tracking shots of children running through cornfields of people happily working on farms of functional domestic bliss you know before he's put into this difficult situation and it's a weird film because you know it is frustrating like there are so many points during the film where you're like can you just not do this and you know but then it's a difficult you know situation to be in like would you sign a loyalty oath to hitler is a question worth asking and it's a film it's you know it's a proposition for a premise for a film worth making it's a really really good film it's a little too long for me it's coming up to nearly three hours in length but it didn't feel like once upon a time in hollywood didn't feel two hours 40 minutes and this does really feel two hours 53 minutes <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, it is worth seeing because it is a stunning film. There are so many beautiful shots of mountains and clouds and buildings and the cornfields do look really beautiful when the kids run through them. Um, but there's a lot less uh, twirling. There's a lot less, like, whispered voiceover than the last three films that he's made. Um, it's I don't know. I wouldn't compare it to The Tree of Life, but it is, it's it is like, the strongest story he's told in probably since Days of Heaven. Um, yeah, that's another film that I would imagine will be coming to festivals and I would hardly recommend checking out. Where the kids? Inside. <laughs> um, one film I av- would avoid, um, I felt like was a waste of time and probably the low point at can for me, was a film by Albert Serra called Liberty which uh, is like two hours, 12 minutes of pretty much a version of the Marquis de Sade, but applied to a bunch of libertines who are fleeing pre-revolutionary France in 1770s. Um, Albert Serra directed the movie The Death of Louis Fourteenth, which I... Th- believe Anders liked very much. And Liberté may well be the sort of thing that would go down well with Anders, I'm not sure. Uh, it's essentially takes place in a, one f- a single forest at nighttime, in a place they call the Poisoned Woods. And it's a bunch of dukes and duchesses indulging in sexual perversions, p- presumably with some sort of political bent to them to do stuff for France. And so you know in the beginning it's interesting like you know i go you know it's it's kind of like making a nod to salo you know the use of this sexual degradation as a sort of means of freeing the human spirit to get away from the political oppression of a particular regime that you're living under or something it's an interesting concept but it's also one that just seems to go nowhere so i actually walked out um 12 minutes before the end cuz i was just so bored with it and Uh, There's always something else to do at Cannes if you're watching a bad movie. And on the way out, this PR woman for the film rushed up to me and asked me why I was leaving. And so I kind of said, well, look, it feels like a futile exercise. Like any point he made, he made about 35 minutes into the film. And so far, we've just been getting a successively stranger, more brutal forms of sexual degradation. And I don't really feel like it's doing much for me. And she was like, okay, thank you very much. That's very interesting. Cycles of Futility, yes. And she kind of wrote that all down and then that was it, which was a weird experience. But um, I think other people seem to like it. I mean, there's a few people I've chatted on Twitter who said it was their favourite film of the festival. I would, would love to know why because I am at a loss to be able to explain or recommend it to you. Yeah, but one film I can recommend and would probably disappear, I think, without me mentioning it, is a film by a US director called Annie Silverstein and the film is called Bull. And not many people talked have talked about this much, but I thought it was a wonderful Um, exploration of an unlikely friendship between two people, a 14-year-old girl who's having a really hard time of living on the outskirts of Houston in poverty and her neighbour who's a retired bullfighter, or retiring bullfighter. He kind of really doesn't want to let go of life in the ring, but age and injuries are kind of forcing him to. And as they get to know each other, almost wordlessly, like there's there's barely any smiles in this film or signs of camaraderie, but there's just this very sincere sort of relationship gets built up between these two people. who have led extremely different lives. And this idea of bullfighting, the bullfighting itself is shot really, really vividly. It reminded me a bit of the 2018 film The Rider, which also had really fantastic scenes of um, broncos and rodeos and that sort of stuff. And it's just got this kind of very, it's not quite sweet. It's very sincere. It's very insightful into life in poverty. It's not quite the sort of American honey style way of looking at the colours and the textures and this sort of almost Malikian kind of, uh, attention to detail, um, Silverstein really kind of focuses more on the characters and even though they are living in these sorts of very verdant, uh, very poor sort of neighbourhoods, it's still done with this really deep affection and empathy which I just really, really enjoyed. Actually, I would say that's one of the key themes of this year's Cannes films. If you're going to be looking at them, it's empathy. There's this really big bent of sincere connection between characters and between f- film viewers and characters. Uh, there were quite a few films that focused on uh, journeys that people were making, um, particularly something like Ev, which I think is going to trans- be translated into English as Homewood, uh, which is a uh, film about taking a body back across the Ukraine from Russia back to the Ukraine to the Crimea. Uh, that was quite interesting. Pedro Almodovar's film Pain and Glory was very much about building relationships within families, um, in this case, between Pedro himself, played by Antonio Banderas, and his mother and his actor that, that starred in his very first successful film. Um, so, Pain and Glory is essentially a sort of a, a very autobiographical Pedro Almodovar film that will be coming out, I think, in a couple of months, um, and that's one that I really, really enjoyed as well. But um, I think nobody really does empathy better than Ken Loach and his film that last oh, a couple of years ago. I, Daniel Blake, took out the Palm Door and won a lot of fans in Australia. His new film, Story We Missed You, is very similar lines, but in this case, rather than Unemployment, um, the lead actor does have a job. It's just a job being a delivery driver for tracked deliveries. So, pretty much every his location is known by his employer throughout his whole 14 hour work days, And he works 14 hours a day, six days a week. And it's basically explores the, the way that people are trapped in zero hours contracts. So, they like all like Uber driver contracts, you know, where you rather than being an employee, you sign to being owner of a franchise. And so, in this case, uh, the lead actor. Who is played by Chris Hitchin, uh, yet another f- unknown who's discovered by Loach and put into a starring role in a good film. Chris Hitchin plays a guy called Ricky Turner who takes on this this uh, franchise, um, buys his own van, goes into debt to buy his own van to avoid paying 65 pounds a day to hire a van off the delivery driving company, and successively he takes on more and more responsibility and is essentially trapped. So he can't take a sick day, he can't go and. To, you know, pretty much to have anything else in his life. Loach just puts these difficult situations up and just observes these very human, very understandable, relatable characters in these awful situations. And so, as that kind of escalates, uh, so does attention, so does your involvement. And it's just another great example of Loach being doing being himself and doing what he does best. Uh, so sorry we missed you. Didn't I don't think win any awards, but I think it does. It does certainly stand out this year. Seb. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this. You could go to uni. Go to uni? What,
1: and Billy like brother, 57 grand in debt, and, what, working in the call Centre now, getting smashed every weekend just to forget his problems? Of course. But It do not have to be like that, does it? There's some good jobs out there.
0: Good jobs? What good jobs?
1: Well, there is if you just knuckle down. Give yourself some options. You know, otherwise, you're
0: just going to end up like...
1: Well, what, I don't you? Do? Not... Oh, fucking nice. Do you really think I want that? Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course I do want that. I want to be like you.
2: And that was a clip from Sorry We Missed You, the Ken Loach movie. Uh, so, yes, there was a lot else besides films at Cannes this year. I went to a podcast recording where the Cannes Festival director, Terry Fromeau, turned up and I managed to ask him a question about why what happened to the Australian films this year and he talked a bit about how... Important geographic representation was, but how also he segued into a discussion about Korean cinema and how much he loves that. So, and also he spoke about how it was a French festival which loved American cinema. So, that, that was interesting as well. So, no real answers. So, I'm still not sure if the lack of Australian content meant no Australian films were submitted or none were deemed good enough. Yes, uh, I did walk past Hilda Swinton on the street at about 2 a.m. and I heard her asking where the nearest a particular bar was she was walking with three other guys but I didn't get to look at their faces because I was too struck by the fact that I was just looking at Tilda Swinton dressed all in white with matching white hair just looking completely incredible um, there were a few weird run-ins like that. Um, I didn't go to any parties. I went to one, but that was kind of by accident. The whole kind of swing and high life thing is more about the producers and the people looking to sell their movies and people looking to buy movies, and that was sort, not the sort of thing I was so much involved in. It was more just about seeing the films and getting the interviews in. I did manage to speak to some people um, but unfortunately, I had to sign a non-syndication agreement, so I can't share my interviews with Leo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt and Margot Robbie and Quentin Tarantino. The interview with Bong Joon-ho was done via an interpreter, so I don't know how interesting that would be to listen to. There was a weird <laughs> Eva Longoria um, I have interviewed briefly as well, but I don't know if she would be very um, cultural, capitally focused. Um, anyway, uh, it was a very interesting experience and there are hopes of other films that I could talk about but I don't really have time. I'm very conscious of not boring people. So do let me know if there's anything you want to hear about or if you have any questions or if there's anything I didn't cover or didn't cover enough in depth um, or any sly takes on the side that maybe I can talk around an embargo and give you more info about once upon a time in America. Anyway, thank you very much for listening to this episode of Cultural Capital and as Eloise and I will be back next month with a look at the next month's movies and the Cultural Capital Film Diary.